Let me invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, let me invite you to take a copy of the Bible. If you don't own one, we've got Bibles on the back of the pews and the chairs. I would love for you to have that as, as our gift to you. And it'll be really helpful to you to have it open in front of you while we walk through a, a pretty good-sized chunk of what the Bible has to teach us this morning. In fact, you'll find what we're going to look at today on page 223 of those little Bibles on the back of the pews, if that's what you're using this morning. I don't know that I've ever been more amazed than I was by the story of Louis Zamperini when I finally got around to reading Unbroken, Laura Hillenbrand's best-selling biography of that great man. Just curious, how many people have read that book? Or you know of it, maybe seen the movie? Okay, not as many as I thought, actually, so this is good. I get to introduce you to this story. Unbroken is really the perfect title for this particular story. It tells the story of a guy named Louis Zamperini who at first was known as an Olympic athlete, of a guy who went through an Olympic athlete training regimen and took everything that was thrown at him, reached the top of his game, had a chance to compete in the 1936 Olympic Games before he turned into a World War II airman and then survived one after another after another training mission when his colleagues around him often weren't surviving those training missions. And then he became a World War II airman in battle and survived bombing mission after bombing mission. One time his plane had 600 bullet holes in it when he landed it safely after that mission until finally mechanical failure led to a crash he crashes in the middle of the ocean. He survives the crash. He gets out of the wreckage. He gets onto an inflatable raft. Then he survives day after day after day, week after week after week on this raft. And not because the food service was all that great. He survived by catching fish with his own hand and eating them raw. He once caught a bird that happened to land on his raft. He ate it raw. He once found himself fighting off sharks that tried to pull him off the raft. And just when he sees a plane flying overhead and thinks, I've finally been found, that's finally my rescue, it turns into an enemy plane that starts shooting up his raft. He dives into the water while he's under there trying to fight, trying to, trying to stay away from the bullets. There's sharks down there trying to, trying to eat them. And he's fighting them off. He's punching them and dodging bullets. And he survives. And finally, his raft reaches land. And that's when his survival story really begins. He's scooped up almost immediately into a prisoner of war camp where he's forced to survive under torturous conditions for years waiting on his release. But you know what? He survived. On liberation, he was skin and bones. That's all that was left. But he was alive. They did not break this man. It's an incredible story told to inspire it's meant to show us what humans can actually do when we put our minds to it and don't take no for an answer. It's a story of grit and determination and follow through. Meant to show us we could do that too if we tap into whatever it was he tapped into. And it is inspiring. For that matter, I'm inspired by so many of you and what I've seen you get through. From marathons to childbirth, from two-a-day practices in the heat of summer to medical residencies that you've somehow completed to chronic illness that you guys carry with you, some of you, day after day after day. Human resilience is amazing. 
But what about when you are broken? Where do you turn then? Unbroken only works as a title for Zamperini's story because it ends in 2008, six years before Zamperini was finally broken as a 97-year-old battling a pneumonia that he did not survive. After 40 days with this disease, Louis Zamperini finally died because nobody stays unbroken forever. What then? How do you face down an obstacle you can't possibly clear on your own? This morning we're going to look at one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. It's the story of David and his epic battle with Goliath. We'll pick up with his anointing as this obscure shepherd boy overlooked by his own family but seen by God and plucked out of obscurity for a a, a mission on the world stage. We'll track through his public debut on the battlefield with all of Israel watching. And we'll be telling a story often told as a kind of Louis Zamperini-style unbroken account of a young boy who had courage to face whatever was thrown out of, after him and, 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 and who, who never took no for an answer, who just came and came and came. A story of confidence and resilience and ultimately victory. A story of resourcefulness and, and survival. But that is not what this story is meant to communicate to you or to me. It has a far more powerful point to drive home and a far more life-giving message for us to take in. This is a story not meant to build your confidence that you can face anything. It's a story meant to build your confidence in God who rules over everything and who has promised that he will vindicate his name by saving his people when they trust in him and not themselves. That's where we're going this morning, through this amazing story that I can't wait to walk through with you. Three steps for us. We'll see first the heart that God loves to see. The heart that God loves to see. Second, the help that God loves to give. The help that God loves to give. And finally, the hope that Christ died to secure. Point number one, the heart that God loves to see. The backdrop for our passage this morning is Saul's rise and quick fall from his throne. He's just been rejected as king because as king, he did what was right in his own eyes. He was not a king who knew God is God. And so Samuel predicted in chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart to be prince over his people because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And now, chapter 16 introduces this man after God's own heart. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the opening scene of our story from chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, 
since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he concentrated, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The Lord sends his servant Samuel to Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem, to the family of a man named Jesse, because the Lord has chosen for himself a king among Jesse's sons. Only the Lord and his prophet know what's going on. They definitely don't want Saul knowing what's going on. He'd be livid. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, they don't tell the village elders what's going on either. Not right away. They just want to know that he hasn't come to curse them. The elders are fine just to hear that he's come peaceably. He tells them to prepare for this sacrifice. He makes sure Jesse and his sons are all on hand. For, and now the stage is set for the real drama of this passage. In this case, it is Samuel who's blinded by what he sees, just like Israel was when they first saw Saul. The first and the oldest and most impressive of Jesse's sons is Eliab. Samuel sees him and he thinks to himself, that's got to be the man. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He looks so kingly. And immediately the Lord, who sees straight through his prophet, corrects him gently. The heart of this text, one of the most important statements in the whole book, comes at the hinge in verses 6 and 7. 
Look back there with me again. Samuel has made his mistake, verse 6. The Lord gently corrects him, verse 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. We've been down this road before, Samuel. We made this mistake already. You went for height, and where did it get you? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. One by one, Jesse's sons pass before Samuel. Abinadab comes, then Shema, then all the rest. The answer is always the same. The Lord has not chosen these. The Lord has not chosen these. And when he's seen the whole line and none of them have been chosen, Samuel asks the next logical question. Is this all your sons? There is one left. But Jesse hints at the fact that there were good reasons to leave this last one out of this lineup. He's the youngest. It's the same word for the smallest. I sent you the tall ones. Do you really want the short guy? He's busy right now doing the thing that he's suited to, watching over my sheep. But Samuel says, bring him here. And as soon as he sees him, the Lord confirms, there's my man. There's the one. Anoint him. As soon as the oil touches his head, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and would remain on him from that day forward. It's all private so far, but the anointing is real. And God is the one who stands behind it. David will be king. Why tell his story in this way? Why begin the story of Israel's greatest warrior king in a beauty contest where he doesn't fare that well? Stories told in this way to show us what God wants and to challenge what we want. It's told like this to show us that what God wants is humble faith. Whereas what, what we tend to want is visible awesomeness. God wants humble faith. We want visible awesomeness. God wants humble faith because he's not actually looking for help here. He's got this. He doesn't need somebody to make his job easier for him. You know, when I approach a job, let's say I had a, let's say I had a dead tree in my yard... 10 feet around and all I had was a handheld hatchet to get the, the tree down. In theory, if I drew on a little Louis Zamperini style grit, I could get that job done eventually. Give me a, a sharpener to keep the blade sharp and in theory I could bring that tree down but if I had an ax, it'd be a lot easier. And you know what would be easier still? One of those old-timey timber saws, you know, where one guy gets on one side and the other guy gets on the other side and we just go back and forth and back and forth. That would make it a lot faster. But you know what would make it faster still than that? How about a chainsaw? Like a really powerful Husqvarna chainsaw. Then I could get the job done in just a few minutes. Might end up on the house, but it would be down. Because I need tools to extend my reach. I am very limited. And it's easy for Israel, for, for us, to think of God like us. Wouldn't it be easier for him to have a tall king 
Israel's got some big enemies. Every inch of height, isn't that just a little bit less power God would have to spend to get this job done? Couldn't he reach higher with a taller man? But no, God's not looking for help. He's God. He rules over all from his throne. He does whatever he wills. He chooses to use us because he wants to, not because he needs to. God's not looking for help. He's looking for someone who will trust him and not themselves. So if that's what God is looking for, if he's looking for humble faith and a heart that trusts him, why are we so drawn to visible awesomeness? Our default mode tends to be judging books by their covers, right? It comes so naturally to us that even, even Samuel, like the, the best example of a holy man in this whole story, even Samuel is drawn to height. Even he takes one look at Eliab and thinks that's got to be what God is looking for. And I think because we know we're like Samuel, we know we're, we know we're always judging based on appearances, uh, <laughs> We, we know intuitively that other people are judging based on appearances too. And because we know everybody else is judging based on appearances, our own appearance tends to matter a lot to us. Can you relate to that? Maybe that shows up in your life through shame and inadequacy. Feeling like, you know, compared to everyone else's appearances, my appearance doesn't compete very well. Or maybe it shows up in pride and condescension. You look around a room that you walk in and you think, I'm glad I look like me and not like them. But either way, it's going to show up in striving. Striving to one way or another put on the best image that we possibly can. Because we know we tend to size up how we're doing in life based on what we can see. And here's where this text challenges us. Any time, any energy, any money we put into appearing more impressive to other people is time and energy and money spent on what doesn't matter to God. Full stop. God is simply not impressed. He's not impressed by how much you can bench press. He's not impressed by how your hair looks today. He's not impressed by what you drive. He's not impressed by how many books you've read. He's not impressed by how compliant your kids might be in public. He's not impressed by what's hanging on your wall, whether it's a degree that you're proud of or a tastefully chosen piece of art. He doesn't care because he doesn't judge based on appearances like we do. He cares what's in your heart. Who is God to you? Do you love what God loves? Do you value what God values? Do you seek after what matters to him? That's what he cares about. So here's a question for you. Where does your appearance matter more to you than it does to God? I think for your growth as a Christian, you need, a, you need to have a good, clear answer to that question. I think you ought to assume somewhere it does. We aren't in glory yet. We're dealing with indwelling sin. 
There is a war going on between the flesh and the spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5. And the flesh side of that war is all about appearances. It's all about us looking good, as good as possible for as many eyes as possible. That's what the flesh will be doing in that war. What are the battle lines in your heart? Where does appearance matter more to you than it does to God? You need to know that because you need to be ready to fight. Not that you just hang your head and walk out of here like, I can't believe I'm still dealing with this. Appearances are so important to me and I know they shouldn't be. No, that's not the point. The point is know where you're struggling so you can fight because the spirit is in you too. He's bearing a different fruit in your heart. Over time, he will renovate you so that appearances matter less to you. And, and, and so that what God sees is what, what you see. But that fight goes through over time, inch by inch by inch of battlefield gained. And one of the best things you can do in this battle is know where the lines are, where do you struggle, and invite somebody else to fight with you. You know, your local church is here as a support group of fellow soldiers, all in the same battle together. You don't have to be ashamed of the fact that appearances matter more to you than they should. You were, you're gonna be talking to someone else whose appearance matters more to them than it should. They know that. They need help and so do you. So why not enlist an army of friends around you to be honest about appearances mattering more than they should and, and then to fight together day in, day out for, for, for a heart that looks more like God's, that loves what he loves. Speaking of which, on to point two. We've seen the heart that God loves. He's looking for humble faith. Now we need to see the help that God loves to give the end of chapter 16 tells of David's appearance at Saul's court. Uh, we're not going to, to, to look at that passage in detail. It is preparing ground that we're going to cover in great detail in the weeks to come. It's showing us Saul coming unglued. He's unraveling from the inside out. He is falling as David is rising. And most of 1 Samuel from this point forward tells that story in great detail. I want to draw your attention to chapter 17 where Israel is once again facing off against the mighty Philistines, where David, this man after God's own heart, finally shows up in public for his people. We need to notice the champion, then the king, and finally the shepherd boy. The story begins with the champion, and by champion I mean the Philistines' champion. Israel and the Philistines are drawn up in lines for battle, each army on one opposing hillside looking at each other across a valley. And from the Philistine line, one soldier steps forward, a champion named Goliath. And it is just here that our narrator slows to a crawl in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 17 to make sure you take in the full scale of this challenge to God's people. Look at verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. If you're not up on shekels, you should know that's basically 125 pounds of armor. He had a bronze armor on his legs too and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The Philistines were great working with metal. 
There's a huge advantage that they had over Israel. And Goliath is like a walking, talking billboard for their ability to arm themselves. And in his hand, he carried a spear, verse 7, like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, roughly 15 pounds on its point. And his shield bearer went before him. This is a living and breathing war machine right here. And if his appearance is terrifying, things get even worse when he opens his mouth. Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. There was precedent for a challenge like this one in the ancient days. This was a common strategy for battle. It would save a lot of people a lot of trouble if instead of two armies just going at it and slaughtering one another, two champions could step forward and fight for their armies. Same ultimate outcome, a lot less dying. You see contests like this in Homer's Iliad, if you were forced to read that in college. Paris fights against Menelaus before the gates of Troy, or Achilles fights against Hector in the same spot. This is a challenge that would be made in a, by, by, a, by a warrior who knows he can win. It's a challenge that you make when you know this is going to work out for us. In fact, especially as it comes out of Goliath's mouth, this is as much a taunt as it is an invitation. Verse 10 puts it really clearly. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He knows they can't match up to him. Height for height, spear for spear. Now see the king. Who will take this challenge from Israel's ranks? Whose job is it to go out before the people and fight against their enemies? That's an easy question to answer. Our story has already told us that. Back when Israel first demanded a king, chapter 8, verse 20, do you remember why they wanted a king? That our king may go out before us and fight our battles. And do you remember why Israel was so happy to get Saul as their king? What made them so excited to see him walking out of that selection ceremony? Chapter 9, verse 1, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul's their Goliath. They've already got a champion, in theory. This is exactly the sort of situation they had in mind when they picked him. So where is he? Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This tall king is not going anywhere. He's a man who looks on the outward appearance. And on the outward appearance front, Goliath is unbeatable. So now enter the shepherd boy. What about one whose heart is after God's own heart? What would that guy see in this situation? How would he respond? 
David's entrance on the scene, starting in verse 12, is almost like a photo negative of Goliath's entrance on the scene. You know, when Goliath steps out of the lines, the, the narrator slows way down and like spans him, full body scan, showing you just how terrible this guy is to face. Plays up his height, his strength, his armor. He's impenetrable. Don't mess with this guy. When David shows up on the scene, it's, it's, it's basically making the, obvi- uh, the opposite case. This is not the guy anyone would expect to do any fighting. In fact, his dad didn't even think to send him to war. He sent his three older brothers, but David stayed behind with the sheep. He's more suited to Aaron's run for his father back and forth from the battle lines to home. Just as he was left out of the lineup when Samuel came to call, now he's left off the battlefield. He's left watching the sheep. In verse 17, Jesse, his father, sends him on one of these errands with some parched grain and some loaves for his brothers to eat and ten cheeses for their commanding officer, you know, just to keep, him on, uh, keep them on his good side. Now read, read with me again in verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage. And he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. This time, David heard him. What would David do? There are two things we're meant to notice about David's response to this crisis. David sees the stakes as God sees them. And David sees the solution as God sees it. David is a man after God's own heart. David sees the stakes just as God sees them. When he's on sight, he can't resist the chance to see these battle lines for himself. As he talks to his brothers, he hears what Goliath has to say. And then look at his response, verse 24. The men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. They said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. This paragraph is key. The key to the paragraph is in the difference between how Israel responds to Goliath and how David responds. It's a back and forth contrast. Did you notice? Israel hears what Goliath has to say and they're fixated on his appearance. Have you seen this man? They ask David. They think of his height. They notice his helmet. They notice his armor and all of his weapons. What does David notice? He notices who he is to God, not his appearance, but his identity. This uncircumcised Philistine, who does he think he is? Israel notices the threat to themselves. Oh, surely he's come up to defy Israel. 
David sees a threat to the name of his God. Who is this guy that he should defy the armies of the living God? Did you see that? First time God is mentioned in this whole scenario. David is the one to see God in this situation as the factor in what's going on. David is outraged at Goliath's mockery. The root word for defy or reproach is used six times in this story. Six times. That's the stakes that David sees. He's challenging God. This army belongs to God. God has attached his name to this people. How this people fares in this world is a reflection on the God who has made them his own. And Goliath thinks he can talk like this to God? Who does he think he is? It took David to see God in all of this. Oh, friends, can you see yourself in Israel's response here? How natural it is for us when we're stressed to to draw our attention into the things that make the threat so serious. Look how tall. Look at the armor. Look at the size of the spear, the scale of the threat, the challenge to us of whatever it is that we're facing. How quickly we leave out the factor that matters most, the living God who's attached his glory to our good. I wonder, friend, what's threatening you right now? What is it that you find your mind drifting to over and over when when you have the time? What do you lie there at night thinking about when you struggle to sleep? What threatens you? And how would it change? How would it change things to see whatever this threat may be as a challenge to God and to his ability to care for you. Not just a challenge to you. How would it change what you see if you see your threat as an opportunity for him to show his glory through your life? How, are, you, are you facing whatever it is that you're facing as if you have a living God who's for you? who sees and knows, who has promised your good will be to his glory. If you're a Christian this morning, you should know God is going to show his glory by showing up for you when you need him. Don't forget that. David sees the stakes in this battle the way God sees them. His name, God's name is on the line. And David sees the solution exactly as God sees it. God's power saving God's people. Saul gets wind of David's perspective on the situation. He wants to hear it from the horse's mouth. So he he sins for David. And standing before the king, David cuts right to the chase in verse 32. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Is this youthful arrogance? Is this foolhardy ignorance? No, this is the courage of faith. The rest of this story, it unspools along a single thread. That thread is David's absolute, unyielding confidence in God's power to work through his weakness. It comes through every moment that David shares, every speech that he utters. You can see it in the next set of verses where Saul pushes back. He He injects the voice of reason. He says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with them. You're just a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. Open your eyes. 
Do you not notice the outward appearances here? You can't get this done. But then David, verses 34 to 36, he says, no, no, I've been down this road before. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there was a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. Is David chest stumping? Is David reading off his resume? Is he trying to convince Saul that he is up to this task? Kind of sounds that way at first, but no, look at verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine too. He's not reading his resume. He's remembering that the Lord has been for him and promised to be for him again. He is remembering what Israel has forgotten at every turn in their history, that they have history with this God. Good reason to believe that he shows up in their weakness and delivers them just as he promised that he would. David remembers what they have forgotten. Saul finally gets convinced and wants to put his armor on David. He figures, you know, with every piece of armor you wear, the finest armor in all the land, the job for God will get easier and easier and easier. Wouldn't it be easier to use a chainsaw instead of a handheld hatchet? David tries on the armor, but he can't move in this stuff. He sets it aside. I'll go with what I know. He takes a staff, five stones from the brook, and now the stage is set. Everything is built to this moment, this clash of titans. The outward appearance to end all outward appearances on one side, the heart after God's own heart on the other. And in the dueling speeches of these two warriors, it's as if the narrator just pulls tight the single thread that he's been weaving all around the story from the beginning. Read with me in verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. This is theological warfare. And David is happy to take these terms. David says to the Philistine, verse 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you with Saul's spear, with Saul's sword. We've got armor too. No. David doesn't even mention his sling. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He takes out the armies of Israel part. He, he, he cuts right to the chase. When you defy us, you defy him. You will meet God on this day through my hand. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Why, David? So they'll sing my praises from this point forward. No. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that this assembly, these Israelites, this forgetful band may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, not with tall, tall kings. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine on his forehead. 
the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. In this theological warfare, in this contest of the gods, Goliath ended up just like Dagon before the ark, face down, headless, utterly defeated. It's an incredible story, isn't it? It's a wonder it's so famous, so beloved. It's got everything. But what is this story doing here besides entertaining us? What is this story ultimately about? I hope by now it's clear this story is not ultimately about us at all. It's not an inspiring story of grit and flexibility and cool heads under pressure. It's not showing us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. This story is here to show us what God is doing in the world. That God has made it his mission to vindicate his name by saving his people when they trust in him. This story is here to show us that he is showing the world who he is by using his power to rescue his people when they're powerless to face what they face on their own. Which is to say, this story is about the hope that Christ died to secure. And I want to leave you with this. This was not the first time in Israel's history that God's name had been defied by those who want to harm his people. Not the first time that he has shown up to set them free and it would not be the last. Think about the David and Goliath story as a flag planted firmly in the ground of Israel's past, pointing forward to what's to come in Israel's future. Israel's true Messiah, the true and better anointed one who would come and free God's people once and for all from a giant far more menacing than Goliath. See, Goliath wasn't just a random giant when he opened his mouth to defy God's people, he spoke with an accent that had been heard throughout the pages of this story. He is the serpent in the garden who whispered to God's people not to trust in God, unleashing death and sin. He spoke with the accent of Pharaoh who looked at God's people and said, they're mine, not yours. And ultimately, he allied with the forces of death itself which is a challenger to all of God's people as they die and enter the grave. Death says of them, my, God can't save you. You belong to me. Earlier we read from Isaiah 25 and the promise that one day God would put an end to that challenge, an end to that reproach. Did you notice the reproach language in Isaiah 25? When the Lord swallows up death, the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Do you hear the echo? You can't survive me. God can't save you. You're mine. Now listen to the conclusion. It'll be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. 
This is the Lord. We, we've waited for him. Let's be glad. Let, let's rejoice in his salvation. All of that. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever entered the scene. So how would God win that victory the prophet promised? Now listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He put on our flesh that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you hear the echoes from our story? Jesus, the greater David, when he first encountered death at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, didn't just cry with sorrow. John tells us he was filled with anger. He was indignant. He was deeply moved at this threat to his people who die in faith. He heard the reproach of the grave speaking over his friend. God can't save you. You're mine now. It would cost Jesus more than the words he used to raise up Lazarus for Jesus to save all of God's people in the way that Isaiah 25 would promise. When Jesus walked out of Bethany into Jerusalem, he walked as to battle, but not on a chariot clothed in fancy armor, leading a vast army. He came looking a whole lot more like humble David, fresh out of the fields. He was vulnerable. He was small before the scale of this threat. Our sin unleashed death in the world. He'd have to pay for it. He'd have to choose weakness and even the cross to get us out from under this suffocating blanket. He would have to lose his life to save our lives. And when the soldiers came to arrest him in the garden, you remember what he told his followers? Put your swords away. The Lord does not save by sword or by spear. I will be pierced for your iniquities. I will be hung up for your transgressions. It was through his death that he defeated the one who had the power of death. Just as David took Goliath's sword and lopped off his head, Jesus takes the weapon used against God's people from the garden all the way forward, and he absorbs it in himself so that he can kill the one who held its power over our heads, so that he could walk out of his tomb saying, they're mine, not yours, they're mine, so that he could clear away the reproach of his people once and for all. Friends, this story is meant to force you to a choice. One day God's name will be vindicated. You can vindicate his name by calling his bluff, by saying, he can't deliver me. By hearing this word that you've heard this morning and siding with Goliath. Or you can vindicate his name by saying, I'll take what Jesus gives me. All my hope is in him. And then see what happens on that last day when the one who is risen now returns at the sound of a trumpet, calls for his own out of their graves. You can see his name vindicated then and say with all those who have waited for him, behold, this is our God. We waited that he might save us. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, choose with David. Choose with God's people. Watch and wait and be vindicated. Because one day he will return. Let's pray for that day. Father, we do pray that Jesus, our conquering hero, would come quickly to rescue all who wait for him. 
And we pray that you would give us the faith to wait until he comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.